This podcast is sponsored by Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management, award-winning wealth managers who go above and beyond to support and guide you. Visit candowealth.com to start building your wealth with confidence. Hello and welcome to Coffee House Shots, the Spectator's daily politics podcast. I'm Katie Balls and I'm joined by Isabel Hardman and James Forsyth. UK net migration hit 504,000 in the year to June, the highest figure ever recorded, according to the ONS. Isabel, this isn't exactly a good news story for the government. No, because it's taking the figures in exactly the opposite direction to the long-held ambition that ministers have had. Now, that ambition has been subject to lots of upgrading and downgrading over the years. So did when the Conservatives came into government have a net migration target of bringing it down into the tens of thousands. That in itself was a real sort of of back-of-the-envelope, lunch-table, napkin sort of target that had no basis on, you know, the impact on the economy or, or, or even sort of political considerations and was a real albatross around the Tories' neck all the way up till 2015 when the party started to downgrade the force of that target from I I remember Theresa May saying on the Today programme we made that comment rather than target I've never heard something being described as a comment before or since but so it it was sort of killed off for a few years and then at a spectator fringe at Conservative Party conference uh, Suella Braverman Home Secretary known for developing policies probably quicker than on the back of a uh, envelope announced that it was back and that that was her that was her ambition again and so you've got you know the rhetoric and the numbers going in opposite directions you then have ministers including the home secretary and the prime minister whenever they're asked about a pragmatic immigration policy as organizations such as the cbi would would put it uh, you know sort of sector by sector uh, arrangements according to the to the labor that different businesses actually need in a tight labor market they will respond to that by talking about the thing about migration at the moment that the very small specific area that really annoys brits which is the illegal channel crossings now that is not that's not net migration that's uh, asylum seekers coming over or you know economic migrants coming over to claim asylum on boats and again we haven't really had an answer a, a decent answer on that whether in terms of driving down the numbers or what the safe routes actually are which is something that Tory members um, of the Home Affairs Select Committee uh, skewered the Home Secretary on uh, when she gave evidence to them this week so I think it underlines that as well as record numbers, we have a record mess on immigration, really. And I'm not sure, as on a lot of things, actually, what the Conservatives will say they have achieved by the next election, 14 years in government. James, we hear a lot from the government about, and also during the Brexit campaign from Vote Leave, about how it's about control of borders and actually having, you know, skilled migrants coming over for various things is a good thing. Are we getting any sense of how the government plans to pitch this? I mean, the interesting thing about this number, which is obviously attracting a lot of comment today, is a lot of things driving it are the forms of immigration that are perceived as being these controversial. So big impact of Hong Kong Chinese moving to the UK following the changes that the government introduced, which I think had broad public support. Lots of uh, Ukrainians coming to the UK, again, something that had broad public support. Afghan resettlement. And lots of students, again, perceived as being a part of the immigration system that is less controversial. But 
that headline number, half a million highest net migration levels on record, is obviously politically problematic for a government whose manifesto talked about reducing immigration. And so uh, how do they handle this? I think Isabel is right that the, they have to get perceived grip on small boats because if you haven't got an argument on numbers, you have to have an argument on control. And the stats out today on small boats crossing show that the number of Albanians crossing in small boats have increased from 241 to 9,076. And that they now make up 45% of those coming over on small boats. Now, Albania, but Albania is not a country with the kind of problems that Afghanistan or Iran have. It is a country that aspires to join the European Union. And I think it is hard to make the argument that the people on small boats from Albania are fleeing persecution at home. And so I think the government has to get a handle on small boats and specifically the, the Albanian aspect of that problem to kind of get off first base on immigration. There's an argument here from some Tory MPs, which is it's easier to make the case for migrants to come over for labour shortages if the government looks as though it has a grip on small boats. Do you think if if they were able to, and obviously that's a big if, um, come to some arrangement on small boats to show a sign of improvement, it would make it easier at the next election when it comes to these figures? That's definitely the argument that Rishi Sunak advanced at the CPI this week when he was asked about it. And, you know, and to a certain extent, Labour have uh, this view as well, that you can't have a you know a practical immigration policy without also solving some of the flashpoints. But the question is, and again, you see Labour sort of treading very carefully on, on the issue of channel crossings to the frustration of some of their more sort of liberal-minded backbenchers who want borders to be more porous and so on. The problem is it is really hard to solve this very visible problem. Uh, you know, I was talking to, to one minister who was saying, well, one of the reasons it's more visible is that those awful cases of people coming over in lorries and suffocating led to a crackdown on that particular illegal route. And obviously those deaths took place partly because those people were less visible. These deaths in the channel and these crossings, and these people landing are much more noticeable, much more dramatic in the sort of public's imagination. And, you know, you ask whether there's a chance of reaching an agreement that could resolve this. I mean, we have obviously seen that recent agreement that Suella Braverman signed with the French to increase patrols, uh, to allow British officers to oversee those patrols, uh, more money to the French and so on. But it was all very small and even Tory MPs who, you know, very tribal were not praising it in the chamber. So, you know, Lee Anderson, for instance, was just basically saying this is just this is just more talk. And then you had other MPs saying this is throwing good money after bad. Uh, and so there's that lack of confidence even amongst MPs who, who really want to see the government succeeding on this and, and would normally just shout tribal nonsense across the chamber. And finally, James, the Met Police have had to contact 70,000 potential victims after smashing a fraud ring. How is the method of doing this going? I think this is actually shows one of the difficulties of dealing with fraud because the Met is texting these people to tell them that it has happened. Now, I think a lot of people, when they get a text saying you have been a victim of fraud, will think that that is, in and of itself is a scam. Now, the Met police point out that there's no link. They're not asking people to click on anything in the message. But I think it tells you, I mean, I think it tells you how hard it is to deal with this because how do you make it clear to people that this isn't a scam? And... I think fraud at the moment feels a little bit like 
antisocial behaviour did in the late 90s and early 2000s. It's a, it's a relatively low level in inverted commas issue, but that it is making life miserable for people because, you know, if you end up being defrauded, it can go all the, all the way from having a bank account empty to the kind of hassle of having to change passwords and this and that. And I think in the same way that, you know, there was clearly a political benefit to politicians who were seen to get antisocial behaviour and do something about it and how it was impacting on people's lives. I think a politician who set out a credible plan for how you deal with all of this online fraud, I mean, that's something a lot of people would say, oh, right, that helps. I mean, I think the particular need for it, because post-pandemic, a lot more people are buying things online, doing things online, and it isn't just kind of digital natives, so I think maybe also more aware of what is a scam, what is not. There are lots of people who are a bit older and perhaps are either more taken in by some of these things or won't do online retail because of it, which is an increasing problem as bank branches shut and people try and move more and more services online. Thank you, James. Thank you, Isabel. And thank you for listening. And if you've enjoyed listening, please do rate and review the podcast by whatever method available. Subscribe to The Spectator in our Black Friday sale and get the next 12 weeks of the magazine in print and online for just £12. And we'll also throw in a bottle of Johnny Walker Black Label Whiskey worth £30 absolutely free. Hurry though, this offer ends on Monday. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash Friday.